Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, do not adjust your podcasting device. You are listening to Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that still insists on bringing facts to a bullshit fight. You've just heard the first airing of our brand new theme tune, specially made for us by the legendary Corner Shop. Its official title is Demon is a Monster, but we're calling it Theme for Romaniacs. Many thanks to honorary Romaniac Chinda Singh from Corner Shop for capturing exactly the right vibe. If you're in London between the 18th and 22nd of October, Corner Shop are part of the Bloomsbury Festival with a special walkthrough exhibition version of their album Urban Turban. To business, I'm Dorian Linsky and I'm here with my regular co-hosts, Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello. I'm so glad, by the way, that we got rid of that old theme music because I hated it. <laughs> it was so this one, This one has space. <laughs> oh, man, this was a vast improvement. Yeah, I'm so grateful. And Peter Collins, the littlest hobo of Brexitology. Hi, Peter. <laughs> Hello. You said channeling Leslie Phillips for some strange reason. <laughs> Until tomorrow, the whole world is his friend. But never mind us. This week, we have an extremely special guest on Romaniacs. Gina Miller is the bona fide hero of Remainers, the woman who has defied some of the worst abuse from Twitter trolls and newspaper columnists alike, if you can tell the difference anymore, and stood up for the very thing that the Leavers were supposed to be so keen on, parliamentary sovereignty. A successful High Court case at the end of 2016 meant that the government had to climb down and give Parliament a chance to debate Article 50. And now she's challenged the government on its £1 billion bribe, sorry, deal, with the DUP. Her intervention means that the bribe, sorry, deal, will also have to get parliamentary approval. Hello, Gina, and welcome to Romaniacs. It's a delight to have you on the show. Uh, pleasure to be here. I was reading an um, interview you did with The Guardian a few months ago where you said, I've never been anti-Brexit, I'm anti-lies. Because of the kind of toxic rhetoric from Brexit supporters, mm-hmm. have, has your position changed on that? I'm, I'm more anti-lying politicians than ever before um, because the lies continue and the twisting of reality that we are in is despicable beyond belief because we have very little time left they're still playing games as though in some sort of a playground. Um, the EU, they're treating as though they can malleably, you know, change their point of view. There is no part of this that makes any sense. And the biggest lie of all is that they're incapable of conceiving a solution to this problem. And until they actually accept that and are honest with the people of Britain, whose lives they're hurting every single day, we will not move on from where we are. And how would you describe your own position on Brexit? Are you I am a Democrat and I do believe however dysfunctional the results are of, of democracy, I do believe in democracy. But I also believe in being pragmatic and realistic. And at this moment in time, if the benchmark is remaining as we are now, they are incapable of finding a solution. That has to be the only benchmark. So the logical conclusion of where we are now is remaining. 
I mean, there is no other way of looking at it because, as I said, we do not have time on our side and they are incapable of listening or coming up with a solution. Fair enough. We like that one. <laughs> We're going to be talking to Gina in more detail a bit later. Before we get started, let's have the traditional gentle reminders from Peter. Yes, Romaniacs is on a roll. Last week's edition with special guest Nick Cohen was our biggest edition yet with over 35,000 listeners. So that's the figure you've got to beat, oh Gina. Gina. No pressure or anything. <laughs> no pressure. Yep. yep. If you'd like to help us grow and reach more people, you can now support Romaniacs via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. If you can spare us a little bit of money each month, like that, uh, it will help us. Oh, yes, we do sound effects. Yes, yeah, it's just like the BBC. Uh, it'll, anyway, spare us a few. <laughs> Why not? It'll help us to spend more time on Romaniacs and to develop exciting new ideas like live events where you can turn up and throw EU standardised cabbages and non-bendy bananas at me, Ian and Doreen if you want to and possibly also ask us some questions. Here's the good bit. In return for different levels of pledge, we're offering you highly desirable Romaniacs t-shirts, coffee mugs and tote bags so you can parade your Romaniac credentials and get into arguments with nasty people at the supermarket checkouts. Plus, we have special extras for our supporters, such as advanced tickets on live events when we get round to doing them. To help us fight the good fight, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast. There are also special extras for the first 200 pledges. And don't forget Romaniacs.com to listen to all of our past shows on every single digital platform known to man, woman, wildebeest or Michael Gove. <laughs> The Brexit news this week was, of course, dominated by the bombshell of Boris Johnson blundering back into the fray after months of concealing himself from public view in a mysterious secret identity known as the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. <laughs> but before we hop aboard the Boris bus, there are a couple of other items that may have escaped your notice, and we'll rattle through them. One is Oliver Robbins, top civil servant at the Department for Exiting the European Union, moving to a new role in Downing Street after reportedly fighting with lovable Brexit Secretary David Davis. <laughs> Ian Dunn, leaving Dex to work for Theresa May now, of all times, looks like hopping out of the frying pan and into the... It died, no. proverbial fire. Yeah, it does a little bit, doesn't it? Um, it's it's always, to be fair, like it's always a, a very weird role in the civil service. You always find problems when people have got one foot in a couple of places. So you often get it with, say, like, you know, you'd be in one department, but then you also have to report to number 10. And that situation for a civil servant is impossible because very quickly your Secretary of State will decide that actually you're giving all of the stuff to the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister will decide actually you're just fobbing them off with a bunch of nonsense trying to protect the Secretary of State. There's so much that sort of whispers and suspicion and rumour around Westminster and around the hallways that it's very, very hard to hold down that kind of job. It was particularly difficult for him because he really at the beginning of it had this very confrontational relationship with David Davis. They weren't getting on very well, <laughs> you know. You would never have guessed, but he rather likes the detail and would go on about the detail and actually how specifically to do something. And David Davis would obviously be trading primarily in bluster and sort of vagaries, really. So that relationship was difficult. It seemed that they had got on to a sort of functional footing. And that was how it was sold, you know, for a few months. It, it seemed to sort of be at its worst at the beginning of the year. But really, by the summer, people were talking about, you know, that this actually kind of working out. He always had a line to Theresa May. They worked together before any of these shifts started coming in. And it seems now that obviously the decision has been taken, but why? It really is it a system of just, this is Theresa May terrified of losing control and actually just sort of dragging in guys like that because she feels that they're being, you know, properly sucked into a Davis's orbit? Or is it the fact that actually she really has got more control than before as part of what we expect to be in the speech of Florence on Friday, which is going out about the time that this is coming out? 
where she's sort of assessing, you know, putting her stamp on Brexit once more. It's not clear exactly how that's all working. What is very clear is that if you're making these kind of changes for the permanent secretary, the right top of the position of the department at this, the business end of Article 50, you've got a massive problem. And it was surprising no one to learn they have a massive problem. <laughs> the FT mentioned that uh, somebody else left, Anthony Philipson. He was another senior of Dexie official, uh, and he's going off to become a UK consul general in New York. You know, de- dealing with tourists and stuff—a nice, safe career move, <laughs> I think. And and they also in quote, <laughs> quoted somebody from inside the department, unnamed, as saying, "Well, what's the point of Dexie if the key official is going to report directly to the Prime Minister? Why have it?" That's a very good question, it seems to me. Why have a department if it's actually going to be pulled back to Downing Street, anything that resembles a decision? Mm. But you've also got all these civil servants who are putting papers and opinions to their political masters and their political masters are going, whoa, we don't want to hear that. That's not what we want you to come up with. We want you to come up with something that supports everything we say and all the unrealistic fantasies that we have. So, of course, these are dedicated civil servants who've been there for a very long time. They're going to leave. How could they possibly be in that position? And it's yet more example, as far as I can see, that none of this is working, that the realism has not come to the political masters and the mindset. And they still think that the EU can be managed and don't realise that when we triggered Article 50, we lost control because we gave it to all the 27 other member states. It's almost like, I mean, the the civil service is basically a pre-Brexit concept because the post-Brexit concept is whatever we wish to be the case, we will present as objectively Mm -hmm. being the case. The civil service is based on the idea of give us a political instruction and we will give you solutions to it. If your political instruction is we want to leave the customs union, (laughs) but there isn't going to be a customs border in Ireland, then you've given them an impossible instruction and civil servants cannot give you a solution to that problem. That is the problem. And also over the years, I mean, the 40 members States, what's happened is that our best and brightest civil servants actually all went to Brussels. So in a very odd way, that's where our brains are sitting. It's actually not here in the UK. And wasn't it only a few months ago when they set up Dexiu that there was this talk that the brightest and best, despite whatever they thought about Brexit, were going to go and work there because it's the most exciting thing that's mm. going to happen in British politics and you want to be at the centre of the, of the action. But now it's like having Enron on your CV <laughs> or maybe yes. Bell Pottinger PR, you know. It's the sort of the bit that you cross out and you sort of, oh no, I didn't work for them, I had, I had a career break. You know? it's, a little, it's a little too <laughs> exciting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like the lion's den. <laughs> was probably quite exciting. In, in the first <laughs> ten It probably seconds. got the pulse racing, well, but you didn't necessarily want to enter it. <laughs> Possibly even bigger news than Boris Johnson's intervention is the news that Ringo Starr has come out as a lever. The former Beatle, who lives in Los Angeles, did not vote in the referendum and once expressed a desire to live in an octopus's garden under the sea, told NPR that Brexit is a great move for Britain and it would give UK the chance to be in control of its own destiny. Peter, should we be surprised that a working class man in his 70s supports leave? Well, I think I can just about get over the disappointment uh, that one retired drummer in his 70s who lives in either LA or Monaco, <laughs> wherever, you, wherever whichever paper you read, is uh, in favour of Brexit. But I can exclusively reveal and this is a bit this is the big thing of the week that the surviving Beatles are working on a double album of their greatest hits reworked with a Brexit theme do you want to hear the track listing no. you don't so. no. I'm going to tell you anyway oh, no. I'm going to tell you anyway we're only human yes indeed yes. all you need is Brexit the ballad of Theresa and Boris oh, can't buy me continued membership of the single market uh, Norwegian would be good if we were like uh, Norway in the EEA. Uh, roll over Beethoven. That's and stretching it some point. Yes. You're going to beat Norwegian would be good. No, well, I okay, think we'll stick with that one. That's yes. the pinnacle. <laughs> yeah, so it's only really. But you, you guys, you found, because you've been on a quest for some time really to find Brexit 
sort of rock stars. You had Morrissey, and your list was stuck at one. We had Morrissey, Roger Daltrey. <laughs> that, that was about it. Morrissey, Roger Daltrey, and Ringo. Well, you've got three. I mean, three's not bad. We've got, we've got a band together. But Paul, <laughs> Paul, I'm sure, continues to give two thumbs up to the European project. <laughs> <laughs> On to our main topic, the return of Boris Johnson. Finally getting off the fence and starting what could well be a Tory civil war over Brexit. On Friday last week, right after we predicted on Romaniacs that he'd launch a hard-right leadership challenge, Johnson published a 4,000-word piece of Brexit fan fiction in The Telegraph. <laughs> Infamously, he repeated the £350 million Brexit bus lie, earning him a stinging rebuke from the head of the UK Statistics Authority. As usual, this made no impression on the most barefaced liar in modern British politics. Johnson also rang the nationalism bell by accusing younger voters of divided loyalties. The intervention went down as well with the Telegraph and Mail as it went down badly with Tory moderates and everyone else. By Sunday, there were calls for Johnson to be sacked as Foreign Secretary, chiefly from people who know that Theresa May is too weak to sack Larry the Downing Street cat. By the time we recorded the show, there were leaks that Johnson was going to resign anyway, unless May backed him, followed by other leaks that claimed that those earlier leaks were overblown. By the time you listen to this on Friday, anything is possible. He both is and isn't Foreign Secretary. He is and isn't the next Prime Minister. He is Schrodinger's twat. <laughs> Ian, what's going on here? Is I mean, it's I don't. Ragnarok. Uh, you know, it's, it's exactly what they. It's exactly what they said last week. You know, there's a space. You know, the, the, if she shifts at all to a rational position in any context, and really, you know, this is not. She's not going to be shifting towards staying in the single market and customs union. Probably not even for transition. But she she might be shifting towards some kind of bespoke EEA in the long term. That says, look, mm. we'll keep. Uh, all of our sort of regulations say on cars the same or on this, but we'll, we'll, we'll be able to deviate over here. Even that gives position to the Nigel Farages of the world to stake a claim for real Brexit. And that is exactly what Boris Johnson is doing now. I suspect, of course, if she'd been going fully the other way, he would have found a way of presenting himself as the opposite. Remember that just three days after the referendum, his Telegraph piece then was all about you can all go live in Europe, you can all go study in Europe, all of which suggested that freedom of movement would continue. And therefore, one would presume, if indeed he knows what the hell he's talking about, which he may well not, that we would then be in the single market. So really, I think with all of the Boris Johnson stuff, I mean, someone the other day, I can't remember who, sort of said he was like a pound shop Trump. And I just think in a way that actually does Boris Johnson too much credit because Donald Trump's sort of white nationalist instincts, I think, are genuinely held. They're genuinely emotionally held. I don't think that Boris Johnson has any genuine convictions at all. I don't think he believes in anything at all. He just does whatever it is that will help his completely freewheeling ambition to find its home in Downing Street. I mean, that's what he believes in. He just believes in power. I mean, that, that is the only thing. If you remember, he wrote two articles on that 19th of February, didn't he, or whatever the date it was. Mm. You know, and he went, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, which one shall I publish? And, you know, how different would things have been if he had published the one supporting Cameron? But he didn't. And right now, the thing I don't understand with this sort of revisiting the 350 million lie and Gove, what are these liars all still doing there? You know, in any other profession, if we had lied, we wouldn't be there. You know, why have we not got as we have with the um you know the doctors if you get if you lie you've done something wrong you're struck off i want to see a political register where if you found lying you're struck off that's end of it mate you can't be an mp you can't run for parliament you can't muck up our lives anymore so i do not understand why he is there maybe he really should go um to clown school and that's the profession he was succeeding <laughs> he's a scarier clown than the one in the stephen king he film, is, he is, yeah it has nothing on him <laughs> <laughs> when you when you dig into this remarkable piece, there, it's sort of there are three major fallacies. One that Britain is brilliant after forty odd years in the EU, but the EU is holding us back. 
Two is that Britain has more opt-outs than anyone else and isn't part of the euro, yet its productivity lags behind EU linchpins, France and Germany. Again, the EU's fault. Three, which I think explains the first two, is that even though one of the drivers of Brexit was resentment towards globalisation, Boris's remedy is Thatcherite free market dogma, repackaged in Brexit wrapping paper with a ribbon of hard nationalism, because he doesn't like red tape. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same prescription, less regulation, lower taxes, and the assumption that everything that Britain has failed to do, from sort of building infrastructure projects to training young people, is because of the EU, even though it manifestly is not. And are you saying less regulation, but, oh, we could have a tax on uh, foreign purchases of housing, we could have, you know, um, more training regulations. You know, he, basically, he's in favour of regulation when he's not against it. And it's just, it's just full of stuff that just, is, just doesn't follow at all. So, the, the, you know, our, our infrastructure is worse than that of France and Germany. In what way is that an argument for leaving the EU? Uh, we should be investing more in all sorts of stuff, uh, and we can't do this because of the EU, but there is, the EU isn't stopping you doing that. I mean, the the article shows he has no understanding of the detail. He has no understanding of how economics works, and he, he has no understanding about infrastructure or the problems, legalities that we're about to face, and that's what's so shocking about this. It is full of bluster and hot air, you know, which is addressing a particular audience because he thinks that's the way to get into power. It's not about thinking about the country. It's not thinking about the problems we're facing. It's not thinking about how we even got to Brexit. You know, this is the, one of the biggest problems with this whole situation we find ourselves with, as far as I'm concerned, is that people are not looking at this, that Brexit was actually the symptom. It was not the cause of where we are today. And they're not looking underneath a what is it? What, are the, what about the communities that were ignored and silenced? What about the young, old who are being neglected? What about our education system? All of the problems are being forgotten while everyone looks at that one little plaster. How do we get the plaster over so I can stay in power? Mm. And this is just neglect on a grand scale. And Boris, as I said earlier, should not be there because he does not understand how this works. He does not understand the legalities of us leaving. And I think on Friday, um, when this is aired, or, you know, Mrs May makes her speech in Florence, I'm afraid I think she's going to announce we leave the EEA. We'll wait to see. And if that's the case, then we are in real, real trouble. It's almost fascinating when you read it. I avoided it for days. It's 4,000 words. You're just like, come on, man. If you're going to do a leadership bid, then get a fucking editor. You know, I mean, you know. It's don't a lot of so... bojo, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really. It, it, it sounds like he got his official or his lackeys to give him some numbers and then he just dictated it into the copy desk in the back of a taxi, basically. There's a lot of what he'd call flimflam, poppycock and boulder dash. Well, indeed. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, the funny thing, it reads like a speech, which, mm, which I it think does. it was intended to be. And in yeah. fact, more than anything, it reads like a leader's conference speech. It doesn't really, say, it, like, I say to you today or something. There's something that yes, really exactly. implies it was meant to be... And even the way the jokes are, the way the, way the jokes are sort of using understatement to, to score a point doesn't really work in text and actually, you know, would work much better spoken out. There's one bit where he says, you know, levers aren't that bad, really, which you presume is a, is a sort of joke on against us lot. Who oh, sort of the last mayor of London, where you'd imagine that you'd just pull a sort of funny exactly. face and everyone would yeah. laugh. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, but what's fascinating then is he doesn't actually seem to have changed at all since the referendum campaign. Now, we spend an awful lot of time attacking David Davis on this podcast. In fact, that may well be about 30% of the time that we spend on this podcast is doing that. And yet, if you take the comments that he makes now, they are a world away from the stuff he was saying during the campaign in 2016. Mm. The campaign in 2016, it's all about bilateral deals for cars with Germany, just an absolute load of old nonsense. Now, he actually, sort of, you'll hear him say, well, actually, this is a tremendously complicated thing, and he comes up with nonsense. But still, it's a, it's a much, much better educated form of nonsense than the type he had a year ago. Boris is completely unchanged. And yet, 
at the core of it, the emotional game that he's playing, the tactics that he's using are exactly the same ones that they had in the referendum. And it's anyone criticising the project has a lack of faith in Britain, is fundamentally not that patriotic. Well, it's quite sinister beneath that jovial, you know, Mm. allegedly jovial tone. You know, when you talking about young people aren't patriotic and it's sort of divided allegiances... I mean, you know. it, it's very dangerous. What he's written is very dangerous because it creates more division, more hatred and, and brings up all those very negative emotions. But also, I think what is I wonder if part of him writing that speech and the timing of it, rather than waiting till the party conference, is because he's frightened of Rhys Mogg and he's frightened of, you know, other people who are becoming more uh, acceptable to the public and maybe taking away some of his shine. So it was yeah. the time for him to reassert his position. Hey, guys, I'm still here. I'm still, you know, I can still be leader. I can still take on Mrs. May. Don't don't listen to the rest of them who are rational. And he's he's picking at the sores again that we had in the referendum. And that's just wrong in every, every facet. Well, what does it say about him? That he, he thinks his niche is comedy toff. And so he sees Jacob Rees-Mogg and he's like, mm. that's my mm, competition. Yeah. You know, nobody else, but somebody else comes along. He seems like a kind of, uh, you know, media, per- fun media personality. That's exactly how Boris sees himself. Yes. That's my turf. And yet you do see, you know, once one adopts that kind of angry, very emotional, nationalistic idea of my opponents are against the country, they're against the spirit of the place, look at how easily it shifts. Because the worst words he uses aren't I mean, probably the worst stuff for young people where he basically questions, he basically <laughs> sort of accuses them of treason, really. Mm. Um, but then there's a, there's, I'm taking this from two parts. I underlined it. It's extraordinary. Suddenly, all of the, the bonhomie just fades away and this vicious, venomous personality takes over. And this is not him talking about Remainers. This is him talking about soft Brexit. This is him talking about people who want to stay in the customs union and the single market. So ostensibly, his, some of his colleagues around the cabinet table, in two parts, he calls it, he said that it would be a complete mockery of Brexit, a national humiliation, turning us into a vassal state with no power, a totally inveterate, inveterate position, a dismal lack of confidence in this country. And that's just for people who are already Brexiters, but on a slightly more you know, liberal end of it than he is. It truly actually speaks quite a lot about the psychology of the man and the emotional state that he's in when you get into those actual the business end of, of this stuff to see the kind of words that he uses and the kind of thoughts that he directs towards his colleagues. Is he, is he taking any lessons from Corbyn here and thinking, look, I, 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 I don't care what the majority of MPs think about me. I'm going to, I'm going to criticise them, attack them, insult them, whatever. I'm just going to go further, go reach over their heads to the sort of populist audience and get the leadership. And then they'll have to shut up, basically, like Labour MPs. The majority mm-hmm. of Labour MPs have to shut up now mm-hmm. while Corbyn is leader because there's nothing they can do about it. Is he... Is he trying to do that? I saw it as fundamentally an emotional statement. So the rest, Theresa May included, David Davis included, are bogged down in the reality of the damage limitation exercise. Yeah, they're trying to come to terms with it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Whereas his thing is to say, look, ignore all of that. Ignore all the bad noise. You don't need to keep on reading things that are going to make you feel bad. Here is happy, go lucky, positive. So all the way back to the campaign. This blank screen, you project every hope and aspiration you have. You want more regulations? It's coming. You want less regulations? It's coming. There'll be more... Ta- there'll be it's, less it's rota- Peter Pan, isn't it? It's like if you just believe in Britain, yes. that's all that's needed. And that's why you get also these absurd sort of criticisms of... Uh, who was it criticising Evan Davis the other day for kind of like talking down Britain? Yeah. But, but it's you know, pure fantasy. If you don't believe, then it'll fantasy, go wrong. But the other thing is, is this somebody also who is so desperate of losing the win um, that it's buying into that rhetoric that quite a lot of other... 
leavers are worried about. You know, they're so desperate that they're going to lose this win that they can't let any light in of reality. They can't let any reasonable conversation in. Um, and that's the problem because we won't move on. We're just stuck in this place that's a very dark, negative, divisive, angry place where nobody can speak up and nobody can be realistic. And the people that he's really hurting is the country. It's ordinary people in this country because, you know, you can look at Boris and you can look at some of the other hard Brexiteers and I get very frustrated because they're not really going to feel it because of their lifestyle and everything. Are they really going to feel if we have, you know, it's leave at any cost. Doesn't matter if it hurts the economy. Doesn't matter if it creates unemployment. Doesn't matter if we don't have people working in our care homes or education. We don't want to hear the facts because it's all about Independence Day. It's about this, you know, some sort of a movie almost. Oh, it's going to be in extraordinary debate. in the debate. Yeah. You know, this wonderful, you know, Hollywood type moment that Great Britain's going to rise again as the empire. The problem is we can't go back to a place in the past when the world has moved on to somewhere completely different. It doesn't exist. So we need Boris to go. We need all of these fantasists not to be there because all they're doing is holding back the advancement we could make in these negotiations. It is damaging and the rest of the world must be just sitting there laughing because the damage it's doing to us as a nation, to our brand Britain as being these reasonable, fair, thoughtful negotiations. I mean, they're just sitting there laughing. And I get told this when I'm traveling around the world. We are just watching you self-harming and you're politicians. I mean, where did you, you know, we're not even worried about Trump, at least as you said, Ian, that he's got the belief. These are ones who'll change their mind depending on what minute of the day it is, what day of the week it is, mm -hmm. and where they think the um, future will go. So it is damaging in so many ways, but they are damaging our reputation. They are. It's funny, they're also, I mean, guys like Boris are also the main real obstacles to the Brexiters securing mm. some form of Brexit. Because they those are. of them who are prepared to make compromises, who are, who are looking at the details, they're the ones who will ultimately be able to get some kind of compromise Brexit through. It'll be long, it'll take a long time, but ultimately we would leave the EU. You'd have all these yeah. other arrangements holding us there. These guys, the guys that refuse to address any facts, are the guys that will really sabotage their project. Well, this, this isn't about Brexit, it's about Boris. And yeah, do we think the reaction that it got uh, what, how's, what do you think? How's that? Do you think that's going to kind of work out for his for his chances? It felt has to he, me that has he hurt himself? I, th I thought it was more negative than usual. Again, my liberal, you know, echo chamber, blah blah blah. I felt that he was getting away with less of the Boris stuff this time than he usually does, and that actually the reaction was quite hostile, even from sort of mainstream media. Not least, I mean, the BBC keep on calling the three fifty million figure controversial. They should not. They should be much they tougher than that. But interestingly, Sky are not. Sky are calling it a discredited figure. So that sort of gives you some indication of that he's still relying on this stuff when actually, even on the broadcast level, where they're you know, famously jittery about this stuff, they're actually being rather more tough with him than, than they had previously been. Can I just, as we wrap up this bit, just cause shock and horror by suggesting that maybe Charles Moore of The Telegraph might have been right the other day when he said <laughs> about something, well, uh, that Theresa, if Theresa May doesn't communicate a Brexit vision, who can blame Boris for having a go? Fair. Mm. Well, yeah, but he didn't. But he hasn't. It's not a vision. It's not a vision. I mean, if this it's was a hallucination, there's a good look just footage yeah. of him walking across a sort of green hill with yeah. kind of like, I vow to thee my country in the but background. But this is the roadblock in the negotiations. <laughs> music, I mean, yeah. the, this is the, the roadblock in the negotiations is that 
none of our politicians have a plan that we're presenting to the EU. You know, if we're the ones who are triggering our ticket, we're the ones who have to come up with a solution and come up with an idea that we want to negotiate or we want something. And the EU's sitting there, we've not, you know, they've not come up with anything. And so a few words blustering and talking about blame doesn't create a solution. So our politicians are the ones who are actually holding this up. Because the truth is, there are only three Brexit visions. There is we made a fucking error here, lads. Let's change our minds and go back and that's remain. There's, we're going to cut ourselves off, slush it down. We're going to take the harm, the self-harm this involves with the country, full no deal out. Or there is compromise, which mm. means, yes, we're going to have freedom of movement on this stuff. Yes, we're not going to make all of our own rules for the way that we do packaging. Yes, this is going to take an awfully long time. But that middle one, which is the only real viable one for most people in this country, will not be addressed by most people because they don't have the political bravery to make those compromises. And Boris's sort of deep emotional spasm in the form of a 4,000 word article for The Telegraph is simply an example of them being unable to make those compromises. The only vision that there is is one of those three. And we're not seeing any of those three options really being put but, but that, that middle conflict. option which is the most realistic I think it shows that um, Boris and et al do not have confidence in themselves to even be able to negotiate it so they're throwing in the towel before they even try yeah. so it says yeah. quite a lot about them but also it's presuming whatever the options are presuming that the EU is going to stay exactly as it is and actually it is a it's an evolving organization that actually accepts that things need to change and at the end of the day we're not the only country talking about um, migration becoming possibly in the future a sovereign issue you know there are other countries talking about this but this whole idea that it's a um, we are incapable of negotiating I thought we were Great Britain is not what they said we were Great Britain we could negotiate we were going to go out there and do all these free trade deals I mean the the rest of the countries looking at us to, to do who we are going to approach for free de- trade deals must be thinking, God, we've got UK over a barrel. We can get anything we want. Migration. We can get anything we want. Look what a mess they're making with the EU. So in short, Charles Moore is wrong. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, though. I mean, yeah, it was a good, you know, just change. Just <laughs> it's worth running up the flagpole, it was wasn't it? it? And Dead pulling back down again, roughly. Down. Yes. <laughs> Here's Peter with a quick commercial message. If you ever feel that life on planet Brexit is so grim that you'd like to leave it for other worlds, there's no need to wait until Elon Musk has built his rocket ship to Mars. No, because you can get spaced out with our partner podcast, Big Mouth, the pop culture talk show for the modern escapist. Every Saturday, Big Mouth brings together some of Britain's best entertainment journalists for an hour of quality pop culture conversation. This week, they're talking about Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. It's the new Channel 4 anthology based on stories by the great science fiction writer. The team are also looking at the new album by consumptive goth rockers The Horrors and asking whether Darren Aronofsky's supernatural thriller Mother really is the worst movie of the 20th, 21st century so far. It's got lots of competition. Uh, you can get Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It's a balm to the troubled soul. <laughs> I feel like I'm. You have a great voice, and it's so soothing. It's the only bit of the show that makes me feel like Jacob Rees Mogg. <laughs> right, you've heard it throughout the show. Our special guest, Gina Miller, Remain Hero, and the woman who continues to hold the government to account when so many MPs won't. Gina, you said last year that you weren't trying to overturn the result. You just wanted the correct democratic procedure to be followed, which is a, a very mm-hmm. sort of reasonable ambition. And famously, there was an, an astonishingly abusive backlash. How much of that were you prepared for? Well, I was pretty naive on two levels. One is I thought I'd be brave enough to bring the case and lots of people will join me. And every time I looked around, there was no one. Um, so that I got completely wrong. On the abuse, because I, I was on the, the trail 10 months before, 
I was going around the country. I actually left London and went to places like Minehead and Cardiff. And I realised how emotional everything to do with Brexit was. So I knew there would be a backlash. But I thought people would stand up and understand what it is I was doing. Mm. And what I realised very quickly is that something changed. There was a switch. And um, I, because of the way I look, the way I sound, I suddenly became a perfect person to be the target of all that abuse. And what I didn't expect was what happened offline. So online, I knew there would be abuse. I didn't expect people to send me beautifully written letters and very expensive envelopes, put a first class stamp on and just have the most vile, poisonous words, threats against me and my family. I didn't expect them to send them from their LinkedIn accounts or from, you know, emails. It was the brazenness and the boldness in which people felt it was okay to say the most vile things. And I didn't expect that. And do you think that Brexit and the rhetoric around that just sort of licensed people to say these things that they always felt and suddenly it felt okay? It's a circular argument, I think, this whole idea. Was it always there? And did Brexit allow something to be unleashed? Actually, I think it's two things that politicians preyed on certain people and their fears. And they created this anger and this they just lied about everything basically so they they saw that there was an anger and a resentment or people feeling that their lives were hurting because I actually don't believe that people apart from the bigots obviously all the bigots voted um, leave but not everybody who voted leave was a bigot but it's just they were not listening to people and that's what I found going around in the country is that people were hurting and they were saying what have I got to lose I don't have much here. The politicians, nobody's listening to me. I'm going to make them hurt too. There was some of that, but also this underlying always... I remember I was up in Minehead and I was talking to a very aggressive leave crowd. And one of the people in the crowd said, when we leave, none of you are going to be able to, are going to be here. All you immigrants are going to be gone. And I said to him, you do realise there's only EU immigrants that are going to be controlled once we leave the EU? And he went, no, all of you. All of you, we don't want anywhere. Brexit will be about taking Britain back. And that was how wrong all of this was, that people weren't being told the facts that actually immigration outside the EU is bigger than it is from EU and it probably will go up because of the people we need here, not just the brains, but the brawn as well. Um, and we could end up with the 1950s where we had people coming to drive our trains, to work on our transport, you know, all of that from our Commonwealth countries, again, could be happening. But I I think also social media didn't help because what is created, and this is a bigger issue, is sort of what I call the ghettoizing of minds, where people choose a media that just confirms their own ideas. They're lazy and they won't look elsewhere. And then, so the people who would normally in the end of a pub bar or in a room on their own spouting very mm-hmm. negative, very hateful things, suddenly had a platform in which they it was just created a feeding frenzy which then ap- amplified their voices. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. Um, but there is something about seeing our politicians being racist and divisive that suddenly became, give, gave other people a message that, well, we can do it too. And I mean, obviously, the, a lot, the reason a lot of these angry people knew about you was from media coverage. Yes. And how much blame do you feel that newspapers... Uh, which use language like enemies of the people and so oh, the right wing press are, are almost propaganda press. I mean, they have be- they have crossed the line, but that politically they've been allowed to because the politicians didn't step up mm. and say this was wrong. I mean, yeah. and I've made n- countless complaints to Ipso and lost most of them because the the code is not fit for purpose. So there's so many things in that. But I mean, if you look at what happened in the past, 
if you look what ha- how radio has been used in the past, how newspapers were used in 1930s, it's not dissimilar to the way it's being used now. And that's what's very, very frightening is that me- certain media is, is being used to whip up public opinion in a way that's very, very destructive. And one of the people who, you know, sent a sort of threatening messages, uh, Rodri Phillips, was, mm-hmm. was jailed recently. I wonder if that had had a deterrent effect or whether just the fact that the further away we get away from that, uh, you know, that initial Article 50 case, has it sort of subsided a little? Have things, no, does it still affect no, your no, life no, every day? It, you know? it affects every part of my life every day because somehow mm. I never knew I was so powerful, but apparently mm. I'm responsible for everything. So <laughs> anything that happens somewhere, it's my fault and I must be behind it. I must be, I mean, it's just totally out of kilter. None of it makes any sense, but it's just because I've become someone who's, it's very easy to identify as somebody who's anti-Brexit, anti-Remain. Nobody wants to listen to the details. They don't want to listen to the facts. They just want to blame someone. So that's still carrying on. But the Rodri thing, I think, is really interesting in that here is somebody who does represent a bygone age, doesn't believe that women should have a voice, who doesn't believe immigrants should have a voice. You know, this is somebody who doesn't, who would very probably be comfortable in the deep south of America. You know, there is a certain mindset who do believe that, but it was unacceptable to say it. Whereas he thought it was okay to say that five, you know, somebody should kill me for, for, you know, run me over for five thousand pounds. So you wouldn't have done that in the past. You wouldn't have been so bold to put that out there. As I said, you might have done it in a small group of friends. But the fact he said it on Facebook to a huge number of different people has changed the way that message is now amplified. But the last thing I'd say in all of this and the messages I get is we should be very aware of this, is the more you dehumanize people, the next stage is then to harm them because you don't give them any human qualities. So you make people like me, you know, and this is what I'll later do. I'm a thing now. I'm not even human. And that's the next step because from dehumanizing a, a group of people, it is much easier to harm them. Do you have, I mean, do you have security arrangements that you put in place now? Or? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the police have been incredible. Literally every part of my life has changed. How do you cope with the irony of being attacked for ensuring that Parliament has its right to scrutinise an important piece of legislation by the people who claim that they are most concerned with <laughs> taking power back for Parliament? I mean, how, how the sheer irony of that? How do you live with it? Well, this, is, this was my answer to um, when I was on plumped on the sofa next to Mr Farage. I sort of said to him, well, have you actually read my case? Do you know what it's about? Because I presumed he hadn't and many other people haven't. It is ironic because it is about parliamentary sovereignty. And that was the thing that I've actually um, confirmed that Parliament is sovereign. And this was much more. And that's why I mean, I'm fighting for Britain. I'm fighting for the Britain I love. And I'm fighting, fighting for a Parliament I love. And the people who will destroy it, the way I cope with it, are so far away from anything I value. They are not of my value system. They're not of anything that I hold dear. So why should I care what they think? So that's the way I protect myself, because these are not people that I value in that same way that I would value your opinion or somebody who's more tolerant. They're very far away from my value system. You, you sat on that sofa with Nigel Frick. Did yes. you have any time in the green room or whatever chatting? No. And the whole thing was a bit of a setup anyway. But I, I, I sort of one of the things I realized is um, and this is something I have actually realized in, in uh, the world of business that I'm in as a woman is that because it's a one camera shot, he had to sit quite close to me. And the closer he came to me, the more uncomfortable he is. He was. So I sort of did this. I tapped the sofa and said, come on, Nigel, get a bit closer. And it completely put him off. He just didn't know what to say. And I've discovered that if you act with grace, 
and kindness. It really does put people off who are going to try and be aggressive towards you. It puts them off their game. So it's my message to lots of people is stay calm, be graceful and carry on with your argument as calm as possible because the other side won't know what to do. So given that we've, you know, you've described this sort of, um, you know, the way we've, we've, we've all become so polarised and there's this demonising of anybody on the, the other side, can you see any kind of a way back now? For, and obviously for us, a way back would be somehow to get to a second referendum in which at least some of the people who voted leave feel that it's safe for them to change their minds or at least some of them uh, the, the, the people who abstained feel uh, well would be motivated helpful. to come out you know we need we need real detail i mean there's 50 odd papers that the government have done it's an absolute disgrace that those are not publicly known i mean you know we should know what each industry how they should be affected we have not had a brexit debate we have not had a real uh, sort of referendum because we had no detail. It was something binary. We need to get to somewhere where once we know the details and all the options, in my view, it is only logical that we can think again or we can vote again, be it through Parliament or through a referendum. Because it's like buying a house. You put in your offer, you get your survey back, you get your searches back, and there might be a few problems, and you decide, am I still going to go ahead? Am I still going to say the same price? Am I going to say where I am? It's just if we can't if we can do that with buying a house, we're talking about our country and our future. Why shouldn't we not be able to do that? So it's, it does sound like an act, there's a strategy there for all of us that basically as we the, the, the talks continue and we get near to something that's supposedly an agreement, we should mm. we should be demanding transparency and say Absolutely. let's see the survey reports effectively, yes. let's see the searches and so on. And to me, one of the one of the next questions would be. Uh, all right, so that's what's being proposed. In what way is this better than staying in the EU? Because a lot of things w that we will have to concede will involve us going along with stuff, regulations and so on, without having a vote on it, obviously. Worse I mean, than we the, are the, the reality is, I think we will end up getting somewhere that's like a Norway model, which is that we will be the takers and we will have no say. And that's why I think the benchmark has to be where, where we are now. So it's either we have the no deal, the deal we end up with, whatever it is, and remaining. It has got to be one of the options because anything else would be harming all of us. It's just pure logic and pragmatism. It's not that difficult to understand. I'd ask a 12-year-old child, I ask my son, they get it. Maybe we get the 12-year-olds to run parliament. Um, but we have to have that as an option. It has to be an option. You wrote a while back that actually when we talk about sort of EEA transition and single market and all that, so it's probably not the right way to go. And actually mm -hmm. the, the best transition is extending Article 50. Yeah, well, I think the thing is there are two interpretations of transition. There's the EU interpretation, which is you're transitioning to something. So you've already left and you're going towards whatever it is you've decided is the end game. And that means that when you're in the transition for the EU, that's a transition of the status quo. So you stay in. And you take all our rules, you're paying everything till you leave, because that's what they're going to give us time to do. And the, the UK seem to have this idea that a transition is, it gives us time to make up what it is we want as we go along. So it's just sort of giving them more time to come up with a solution. But it doesn't work like that. The only thing that would give us that is if we had an extension of Article 50, which I think we've passed, we've gone past now. I don't think that's an option. From what I'm hearing from the EU, all efforts are being put on the transitional agreement. They don't want us in there. We've passed time. We've messed about. We haven't. It's quite interesting in the German election that Brexit and the EU hasn't really been mentioned. Mm. They're looking at their, more, their own domestic issues. So the 
EU27 are thinking about their own domestic issues, the future of the EU, and we are just going to just be gone as soon as possible. And I suppose the fact that the euro area economies are, are doing quite well at the moment gives them, uh, the other EU countries, more confidence that actually Brexit isn't going to be so bad for us. Goodbye. <laughs> Well, they know the complexities. They understand the infrastructure and the complexities and, and the legalities of us leaving. And they know that we have no, we don't have any infrastructure in place. We don't have any resolution courts in place. We don't have any of the authorities we would need to replace open air, the pharmaceutical. They know we don't have time. And, I mean, just look at Ireland. Just one simple thing with Ireland, with the border that would have to be in Ireland if there was ever a border. Most of the trucks at the moment going across the border, traffic is in one lane. We'd have to have at least five. How long is it going to take to build five lanes across the the, the Irish border? And also, that's just one tiny thing. Um, and then you also then look at that if you have to stop each truck and there's a delay of, say, two minutes to, to 10 minutes, that adds another 25 kilometers to the traffic jams on our side and on the EU side. It, it, none of it, the, even the most minute detail that you hit upon creates this huge, if you like, to-do list, which is so, it's, it's even too fantastical, which is why I think they are just going to leave. There's a thing called Article 127, yep. um, which is going to take a little bit of introduction. Mm-hmm. Basically, Article 120, yes, I know everyone is always so happy when I say those words. I can just see people around <laughs> the break. table excited. <laughs> yeah. Oh, everybody needs the loo. How strange. Okay, so basically in the EA agreement, if you are going to leave... The single market, which is part of the EEA agreement, which is an agreement between the EFTA states, European Free Trade Association states, and the EU. You have to give one year notice. Twelve months, yes. Yeah. That comes through Article 127. Mm-hmm. Now, there are rumours. It's not quite clear, by the way, what happens if we don't trigger. Because the EEA agreement is an agreement between EFTA states and the EU states. And if we didn't trigger and we fell out... We'd be neither, but we would still be in it because we wouldn't have left. And that puts us in a very strange legal position. However... There is an increasing amount of chatter about 127. Some people, like James Chapman, formerly of DexEU, was sort of saying, if you don't trigger it, you're staying in the single market. There's other people with legal advice that says that is not the case. And actually, really, you'd be out. Those rumours, you alluded to them earlier about May's speech, saying mm-hmm. it's possible she'll announce leaving the EA. I mean, do you, what is your position on where this is with the 127, whether we're going to do it? And if so, is there a chance of using the precedent of your court case on Article 50 to drag it to the court? Mm, Article 127 is slightly different. It actually has already been a court case, which went to the Court of Appeal, that ruled in favour of the government because they basically said it's too soon um, because you have to have the minimum of 12 months, which would actually be, if, if May came out and said that's what we're doing, would be March next year. So it's actually, so what the court said, it's come back late, it's too early, is in effect what they said in that ruling. But the thing is with 127 is that um, we would have to do it. And I think the government would, for one reason, they would follow the right process. Because the Vienna Convention on International Treaties says that you have to follow process. And they're about to try and do international treaties and free trade deals with lots of other countries. So do they want to already be a government which never follows and stands up to its, you know, and and honours the process, or when they're about to negotiate lots of other trade deals. So I think they will do, and what it will be in that 12-month period. Um, and once they do that, there's nothing the parliament or any court could do. I mean, they, they could try and trigger it using royal prerogative. I, I presume that... No, they wouldn't. They'd have to be an active parliament. 
It would have to be an act of parliament. By virtue of, of the Article yes. 50 case? Yes, okay. but we'd, it would have to be by virtue of the convention as well. It would have to be a vote, an act of parliament. Uh, and then they would have to do the same as they did with Article 50. So they'd have to do a, an official withdrawal through an act of parliament of Article 127. So could the, that now be voted down? Because obviously we're yes. a different parliament yes. now, quite a different parliament. Yes. Um, it's an interesting one because the other thing that um, people are possibly are not aware of is that the House of Lords is an oversight it doesn't really intervene because it's the elected House House of Commons that really is the one who carries through or carries the most weight, except for something called the Salzburg Convention, which basically means if there's a minority government or a government of no confidence, the House of Lords have more power. So at the moment, if the DUP decide that they might be a little bit upset about the way they've been treated and they were duped with uh, the billion bung, as it were, and don't, and as they did last week in Labour, they voted with Labour. If they decide they're not necessarily going to back this government, and so the government can't get through its legislative program and timetable, and there is an ineffective government, then the House of Lords could actually be far more effective in this. Did you see any I mean, conversations you've had with sort of Tories that would suggest that they might, on a vote of that importance, it was ultimately about leaving the EA, that there might be enough of them to come over? Certainly, that's not the impression I get from the conversations I have in Westminster. Not yet. That's what, I mean, I've spent this summer talking to, because I'm interested in talking to all sides, all parties. I think that we have to have a solution that's every, the greatest hearts and minds together. We have to leave aside party politics and binary left-right policy. I'm interested only what what's about our country and our future. And the phrase that I'm so fed up of hearing is not yet. It's not time yet. We need to wait. I don't know what we're waiting for, <laughs> yes. but that's been the most common thing I've heard from different politicians from different parties. And it's so frustrating. And your work has had more impact on the process and the debate than, than the work of most politicians. You said there that you're not really interested in this sort of like partisan binary. Yeah. Has anyone approached you about entering parliament? Has anyone they sounded have, but, you out? But, but I'm, you know, Tories might like being whipped in private and professionally. Um, but um, I have no appetite for that. So I, I would not enter this political system that we have because there are many things that are wrong. And the way up, and I think part of it is also the way Westminster works. So I would like to see something that's very different. And at this moment in time, I can be more effective as an independent than being part of any club or any party. And knowing what you know now, knowing how sort of hard elements of this have been, would you... Would you still have made the same decision you made last year? Is there any part of you that would? I, I mean, go back? my, my Brexit, as everyone calls it a Brexit case. It actually wasn't a Brexit case, but let's just carry on with that. <laughs> um, uh, it might well have brought me to the fore, but it by no means defines me. I have been fighting for social justice and transparency for nearly a decade now in the financial services and the charity sector. I've always been there to fight. I think that's where I've always seen myself as a fighter, and I'll carry on doing so. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. Thanks to Gina for coming in. We really appreciate it. Don't let the bastards grind you down. I have to tell you, listeners, that I'm in the, what did you call it? The, the Rainiac Sauna. <laughs> Good gosh, it's hot down here. It's the of force of our moral arguments. I, I think it's all the hot takes. <laughs> yeah, it is, maybe. <laughs> Raise the temperature. And thanks also to Ian and Peter. We'll be bringing back reasons to be cheerful soon. In the meantime, one reason to be cheerful is that next week's special guest is comedian Al Murray, 
pub landlord Arch Remainer and the man who stood against Nigel Farage in South Thanet in the 2015 election. We'll have to start drinking early that day. <laughs> <laughs> to sign off, here's a bit of Danish from listener Anders Andersen. Beklager, Boris. Men du kan ikke blæse og have mel i munden. Post your translations on Twitter and tag us at RomaniacsCast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And to play us out, here's a bit more of our terrific new theme tune by Corner Shop. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.